Oh, it's such an honour, Danny. Um, to be a part of this amazing podcast you're doing here, and it's just really cool to be talking about this book. You know my work, and you've given it a lot of thought, and um, I don't normally get such good questions, to be honest. <laughs> Your podcast is the one that I listen to when I want to listen to an interviewer who has actually read the books she's asking questions about <laughs> and asks really interesting, insightful questions about it, and I think that's really special. Thank you for your wonderful questions. It was a good chat. Great chat. You're a good interviewer. So enjoy listening to the podcast. That's brilliant what you do. Honestly, I'm so in awe and we need more word nerds like yourself, people that are passionate about books. Welcome and thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny V. Today, I welcome author Michael Pryor for the Words and Nerds second episode of the Feedback Sessions, whereby a very brave author, Michael, shares three drafts and discusses the evolution of them with feedback and rewrites. Michael Pryor has been shortlisted nine times for the Aurelius Award for Speculative Fiction and has also been nominated for a Dittmer Award. Eight of Michael's books have been CBC Notable Books, and he's been long-listed for a Golden Inky and shortlisted for the Waybrow Award. Ben Hobson, author of Snake Island, joins us as co-host. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast feedback sessions. Michael Pryor, who will be sharing three drafts with us today, and guest co-host Ben Hobson. Hello, everybody. I'm back. Woo! Hey, Danny. Hey, Ben. Now, the feedback sessions came about from a late night Twitter conversation between Ben and myself. Ben was smashing out his words, hashtag Hobson writes. I was just in awe of his amazing writing, you know, smashing out those words. And I had this wild idea of how about we share some drafts on the podcast. And Ben, I don't know if you were sort of deliriously said yes because you were tired or you were writing (laughs) things of words, but you said yes and here you are again. Yes, I just... I find these types of discussions uh, as, a, as an author, like when I hear other authors, this is why I'm so excited to talk to Michael and it's, so, it's such a privilege, Michael, that you're, you're sharing this stuff with us. Um, it's just so, it's encouraging, I find, especially when you hear about like someone's gone down this road and then they've come back and you're sort of like, oh, it's, everyone's kind of messing around with it, you know, trying to find the heart of it and I think that stuff's super valuable. The whole business of uh, discuss, discussing, talking about the craft, it's invaluable. It, it, it validates everybody's experience. When you think you're doing it wrong, you, you hear someone is doing it the same way you are and having the same problems you are. There are a million ways to write well and you have to find your own way. I, I love listening to people talking about their practice, writers yes. especially, but artists, creative people. I'd listen to a plumber. Talk about changing it back. If she did it passionately, I'd be right in for that. Spin-off episode, what do you think? (laughs) No, I think you're right too because I think, um, I know, you know, before the podcast, I think, I mean, I mean, I was an English teacher, so I, I read a lot of books, but often you're in awe of these books and you're intimidated by these books and you think, I can never create something like that. But when you figure out that they didn't start like that, that wasn't the number one draft. <laughs> I think, you know, books are still magical, but um, you unpack that so you don't feel so intimidated by it. You think, well, you know, maybe maybe I could give that a crack. Hmm. The process is fascinating. Hmm. And the outcome, the product is wonderful, of course, but the process is almost equally fascinating. 
Yeah, I agree, and, and yeah, and I, I totally agree with um, with you, Danny. Just the way when you read a novel, it feels like I can't. Sometimes I always think about it, it's kind of like it's been etched out of stone. It's like always existed. It's like this fable, this myth, and it's just like how did this get to be this perfect thing of what it is? And then you hear, you know, that author. I mean, like, like you know, using Richard Flanagan as an example, like when I read the narrow, when I read the Narrow Road to the Deep North, like I was in awe of that novel. But then hearing how he wrote it over what fifteen years and wrote five drafts and binned them all and all that sort of stuff, I'm like, okay, you know, <laughs> that that mountain seems climbable a little bit more. It's the shared pain, Ben. <laughs> yeah, to gosh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Now, both of you are return guests. Michael, we spoke way back on episode 36. Thanks for taking a pun on the podcast way back then. And we talked about Gap Year in Ghost Town. And Ben, you featured in episode 117 about Snake Island and then featured in our very first feedback session in episode 169, which people loved. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, always fun to talk to you, Danny. You're just... Yeah, what we were saying before we started, it's sort of like we're all gathered in a cafe around a coffee having a chat about writing and books and things we care about. So absolutely delighted to be back. It's a COVID cafe, so we kind of are. We've got our own drinks, but unfortunately we're in, we're actually in three different states. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Like, you know, COVID's terrible, but it's cool that we can do this across three different states, I reckon. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Now, Ben, before we get on to Michael and um, the sharing of his wonderful drafts, which I really enjoyed reading, can I say, you're back to Hobson Wrights. Can you tell us anything or do you have to kill us? <laughs> no, I definitely don't have to kill anybody. Um, yeah, so I am back um, sort of every morning. I've actually got a new routine, though, because during lockdown, I was writing in the in the afternoon and so I was getting a lot done then. The kids would watch a Marvel movie or something, and I would write on the chair. But this new routine, I've been getting up at 5 a.m. because of, you know, getting kids to school and high school and stuff. But it's just quiet. I get a coffee, and then for one hour I write. And so I've just been tweeting about my progress with hashtag Hobson Writes. And this new thing, man, I've been spending, I've spent years on it already, and I've always come back to it, and I sort of wrestle with it, and it's, it's in that stage where... Um, and I'm sure Michael has probably or hopefully experienced some of this as well, but where you just have to sort of wrestle it and then you try this thing, it doesn't work, so you come back and then you go this way and, oh, there's something there. But, and it's sort of, it's figuring out what it is at this stage. So we'll see. We'll see how long it takes. I don't know. I'm not rushing. I'm enjoying the progress with it. I'm enjoying the journey. I've got a question for both of you. When you start a whip, right? You just start your work in progress. And then obviously then you think this always happens. I hear to authors and to myself as well. And you think, Oh wait, no, I've got this actual, I've got this better idea. And you then kind of neglecting <laughs> the first one to start on the second one. But if you do that, you obviously never finish anything. Do you sometimes try and combine those two ideas together or do you just go, this new idea has to wait while I focus on this one? Yeah, I, I tend to shun that, that, that bright new idea and, and put, it, put it aside uh, for later. And it most often happens when I'm in the last quarter of the work in progress. It doesn't often happen at the beginning. It happens when I'm coming towards the end of the project and this bright, shiny idea jumps up, but I can't, I've got to, finish, got to finish the work in progress. 
And it has happened, I think, once or twice over my writing career that this bright, totally unconnected idea has jumped up and I put it to one side. And then I thought, hold on a second, I could sort of inveigle that in. Yeah, it has happened. And that's sort of serendipity. You, 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 can't, you can't look for, but you have to be open to it. Mm, I like that. Yeah. So I was wondering that if sometimes you went, no, no, this shiny idea can actually be part of this current yeah. idea. Ben, what about you? Yeah, I, I definitely have done that. Most of the time when you're working on one thing, I, my mind is sort of focused on that thing. So it's very rare that I get a, an idea for a brand new whole project. Most of the time there's scenes or like events that I think that it might be interesting to explore. My big thing is names. I find names bleed between um, projects. So I'll use names that I just I find, because I find naming characters very difficult. And I think it probably goes back to that thing we were talking about it like that, where novels feel like they're etched out of stone sort of thing. Those names have already always existed. Something like Jasper Jones, as an example, just like that's such a good character name. And then for me to come up, when you're coming up with that name, it never feels as good as those ones that have felt etched in stone. And so I, I tend, if I find a name, I tend to just put it into the newest thing. and <laughs> so Hopefully it'll work that way. Um, that'd be one thing, I think, names. But yeah, sometimes, sometimes just scenes as well can bleed out into other things as well. Interesting. How do you go about naming your characters, Michael? Do you just do it or do you just feel it or is it... Is it troublesome names, for you as well? Names are hard. Names are a challenge. It, uh, because I often know an awful lot about the character before I know their name. Mm -hmm. And then I have to find the name that fits the character. Yes, absolutely and, right. And that, there are so many names that don't fit your character. <laughs> and they're easy. You just uh, whip them to one side. But uh, I, I will almost always write them down, write them and say them out loud. I like to hear the names to see if they work with the, how I'm imagining the character and, and it takes time so, sometimes it's the bolt of lightning that bam she was always that 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 person that that was her name and that's wonderful you make use of that occasionally sometimes I'll, I'll have a name and I think it's all right and then after right halfway through the first first drive I think no 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 that, that name's not working I have to go back to scratch and try again but uh, it's, it's always a challenge. And when you write a number of things, you start thinking, hold on a second, have I used that name for a minor character about three or four <laughs> stories ago? It's just me. I'm stuck. Oh, I'm stuck on characters to begin with this letter. I need to start with a different letter. And then, of course, there's diversity. I mean, mm -hmm. the names that come to you easily are, are often from your own comfort yeah. zone, your own circle, your own uh, cultural heritage. And so, again, lately, over the last five or six years, I've really tried to push myself outside that and talk to people and use baby naming sites and historical things. <laughs> I've done that too. Oh, all, all writers use baby naming sites. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, to greater or lesser extent. <laughs> it, 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 it is looking for those names that work well and work well. And when I visit schools... I'll often end a session by saying, great, I need some names for my new novel. Oh, they're quite willing to. Oh, me, me. Can I be in your next story? Yes, all right, I'll guarantee it. But just remember, buy a copy for you and for all your friends. <laughs> 
and at schools, I think as well, you've got such a diverse range of names and um, it's a new generation though. So you might not be able to use it if you, you know, writing from Victorian age or something. That's right. You have to be aware of that sort of thing. If, I, if I'm writing about someone who's 30 years old, I don't use current names mm. that are in schools. I have to go back 20 years yeah. for all of that locative stuff. But, uh, but there are always names that are out of time. There are some mm. characters who have old-fashioned names mm. and yep. characters who have uh, up-to-the-minute names. It's always a challenge, man. It's always a challenge. Yeah. Naming your own children. Yep, very much so. <laughs> I don't know whether I agree with that. <laughs> I think I spent more time deliberating my own children's names. I don't know, though. You might be right. Yeah. But with, they, your children, with your own children, you can't change it halfway through, though. That's right. No, halfway through their just, life, you yeah. can't say, right, delete. I'm going to delete your name and I'm going to change it. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> with, yes. <laughs> I've actually I've actually used a website. I've actually nearly bled it dry now, but there was this particular set of photos from like um, 1930s Melbourne, and it was like mugshots. The criminals. Criminals. Yep. yep. Yeah. Oh, okay. So this is well known, apparently. <laughs> oh, it, it's a wonderful archive, and yes, some of you look at those faces, and I love looking at historical photos. Like, right. And some of those faces look. 1930s or 1910, whatever. But there are occasional faces you think that is such a modern face. Yeah. <laughs> the person could be around today, and you wouldn't look twice at them. It's I agree. So they're so um, vivid too. Like you, you look at them, and you're like, oh, okay, that's exactly the face I need for my character. Oh, his name or her name is this. Yep. It works really well. And yep. what's but that I think- um, for writers? How do you access that, Ben? I don't want to. T- no, um, <laughs> this will sound horrible. I go to Google and I type in old Melbourne mugshots and then I click on the first link. I've never, bookma- I've never bookmarked it. But yeah, I, I, find, I find if I have pictures with names and, I, and then I can combine them. That's Nearly all of, all of Snake Island was from those mugshots. So you'll see Cahills and you'll see, you'll see all, Sydney, all the characters are all there. I'm going to have to go back now and see what they look like, Ben. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it yeah, you'll see, you'll see some photos of them, yeah. See if yeah. it matches what's in my brain to what's... It's one, of, one of those photos from that collection, that's basically got its own fans, that he, he's called the good-looking crim. Oh. And yeah. People yes. tweet, tweet him and, uh, and he's, he's a hard man, that's but he's, uh, yeah, he's very good-looking. Oh, my gosh. I had <laughs> no hard. idea. Ben's gonna. Ben's googling now. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I'll, <laughs> I'll become a fan. Absolutely. <laughs> now, Michael, you're with us today because you are wonderful. Because you are going to share some drafts with us. Now, I think um, you know, in in light of um, you know our time, etc. Maybe the the first page you could read of draft one, two, and three. But I thought if you read the first page of draft one, we can have a chat about it and see how it evolved and who read it and how the process uh, changed for you throughout. Are you ready? Yep. And I think the um, I think the project might need a little bit of background to start. Yeah, go. But. Uh, this was this was a lockdown project. I'd finished something. I wanted to take a little bit of a break from writing full-length novel. So I wanted to write a novella, you know, a 10, 15,000 word story. But I had a particular uh, aim in mind. I wanted to revisit uh, some stories I'd written 10, 12 years ago. 
in 2006, I published the first book of my Laws of Magic series. Oh, look, there's a poster over my shoulder there. Uh, and that, that turned into a six-book series. Uh, the last one came out in 2012. And so here I am, eight years after the last book was published, revisiting those characters. Mm. Now, six, a six-book fantasy series, and it's sort of um, it's set in a world like our own in the Edwardian era, but with magic. And, uh, and living with any characters over a six-book series, but especially one in a fantasy setting where I've created the whole world, uh, you get to know them really well. And when you finish, when you finish that last book, you feel a bit bereft <laughs> and you've broken up and they're going off, they're going off to have lives and adventures and I wasn't going to be with them. So that was eight years ago and it, it, it uh, established quite a fandom, lots of happy readers. And so I thought, look, in the middle of COVID times and lockdown, I'd write, I'd revisit that world, revisit those characters as a bit of a, a, a gift to my loyal readers over so many years. And uh, so that was the impetus behind it. Second impetus, I decided to do it as a, uh, as a self-publishing venture, something I'd never done before. So I'd do it in digital form and I'd make it free. It was, it was a gift to all the people who'd read and loved the books and loved the characters. And especially uh, after so long, it, it was a revisitation. And I had this... Um, my, the conceit I had was that the characters had continued to age while I'd been away. Mm. So picking up the start of the story on page one, the, uh, uh, when we left them, they were in their very early 20s. They were young adults. It's a young adult series. And here we are in 2020, eight, ten years later, and they're in their early 30s. So what's happened? What's happened in the meantime? Yeah, a lot of growing up, a lot of life has happened. And so that was the other impetus behind the story. That's great. Yeah. So no Maggie from The Simpsons. Ah, no. no, no. It, it was a little bit, it had that sort of feeling of, uh, of the imaginary life, where we were going. But I was picking, essentially, I felt like I was picking up with them. Now, that, that, that posed all sorts of challenges, of course, because... Uh, uh, when I started this story, it, it relies somewhat on a knowledge of what's gone before. But in a novella, I can't spend two or three chapters saying, previously in the <laughs> laws of magic, I can't do the recap like that because that would just take up too much room. So I had to sift in enough details for new readers, new readers to the uh, world of the story, but without boring the ones who, yeah, we know all that already. So that was a, a structural challenge to uh, begin with. All right. That's the preface. That's the background. Any, any questions about that? No, it was very important. I thought it was great. And I like how you've, you've made them age. I think Because I think your readers would have aged as well. Yes. Well, I don't think they actually, they would have. <laughs> that's exactly what I thought too. So let, 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 let's move on. Let, let's go with time. Let's not, not defy it. And we'll see these people who, in the previous set of six books, were facing growing up, becoming young adults, but now they're, they're adult adults and they're facing other challenges and, yeah, all of that. So, yeah, that was, that was, that was fascinating. And, Ben, it gets like this with your character. You know your characters well after writing <laughs> about them for so long. And it, it's, 
it's almost like you get to a stage sometimes, especially with me in dialogue, that uh, when the characters are talking, it almost writes itself. Now, mm. yeah, very much almost. Uh, there's still a lot of work going on here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But, but this sense that character A says this, well, of course, characters B are going to say that because she's yeah. got all this and all of this background. And, and then, well, she says that, then, well, naturally, he's going to say this. And it unfolds in front of you when you're right in, right close to them. And that's yeah, what it's almost like, I mean, I, I, I totally understand. Like, there's still a huge amount of crafted work that goes into it. But when you have developed your craft to such a stage and you say, like you say, you know, you're the characters, it would be just like sort of eavesdropping in on a conversation, right? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It is like eavesdropping. And, yeah, doing the quick editing on the fly. But, yeah, it is just eavesdropping. And it, it's also a privilege to sort of share that with them. And they stop being characters and they become people. And I know they're not, but they're people. <laughs> <laughs> I totally right. understand. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll have a read of, uh, of page one of, uh, of the opening of Brink of Disaster. Here's a little bit more background. Brink of Disaster, the title. We talked about how character names are tricky. Titles of stories and novels is another challenge. But, uh, oh, don't even get me started on that, Michael. <laughs> yes, well, oh, yeah, I've been yeah. through that a lot. But uh, I, I sort of stumbled into something with uh, the Laws of Magic series. The first book of Laws of Magic was called Blaze of Glory. Place of glory, but it was just a great title. Here we go. It's the laws of magic. When I wrote the second book, the editor looked at me and said, "Well, what are we going to call this one?" Okay, right. Trying different titles, and then I sort of started to stumble into this idea of three-word titles: Blaze of Glory, Laws of Magic, Heart of Gold, and then there's Moment of Truth, Time of Trial. Ah, uh, that's clever. It, it, it was just it was just luck in a way, but once I once I locked onto it, I was going to make that one pay for all it was worth. And so each of the six books have three word titles. So this novella had to have a three word title. Goodness me, the number of phrases I wrote down before I said, "Yeah, brink of disaster." That's going to work. And so <laughs> here we go. All right, brink of disaster. Opening version one. Aubrey Fitzwilliam wasn't sure how he felt about ambivalence. On the one hand, it showed an unwillingness to fall for the allure of certainty, which too often was the refuge of the obtuse, but on the other, it could lead the way to wishy-washiness. Aubrey never wanted to wash wishy. Life was far too much fun to journey through it half-hearted. <clears throat> Did you realise, George, he said to his best friend as the wind spirit nudged the bollard, that today marks 10 years since the armistice. George Doyle caught the rope Aubrey flung him and made fast. That I did not, old man. Champagne would seem to be appropriate then. Aubrey pushed back his straw hat. After three months in the tropic, he'd grown somewhat accustomed to the fierceness of the sun, but was still wary of it. Fetch Carolyn and Sophie, and we'll drink to the Great Continental War, but gladly it was over before it truly got started. In the late afternoon of a tranquil day, the harbour of... XXX on the island of Yasur was relaxed, to say the least. A single steamer of the small, battered and characterful variety was wallowing somewhat near the shore and the dugouts that were the conveyance of choice in these parts were all beached. Caroline emerged from the binnacle, the pith helmet that had been her customary wear since they'd embarked on their South Seas idol, appearing first in the jaunty white scarf and then the rest of her. 
She turned, smiled at him, and Aubrey mused on how Caroline Fitzwilliam was the only person in the history of the universe who'd managed to make khaki shorts look stunning, let alone the many pocketed khaki shirt she wore. Uh, she put her hands on her hips and breathed in deeply. I can smell vanilla. There we go. There's uh, page one. Can I just say, before we start talking about the draft, I'm always reading books to little people. It's so nice to be read to. It's oh. just bringing me back to my child. I'm feeling a bit sleepy now. <laughs> it's an absolute delight being read to, no matter it how is. old you it are. It really is. And, uh, and I, I talk about this to kids in schools again, that, that, that there's the magic formula that puts you in receptive mode, that there are a few phrases that once the storyteller... Uh, rolls off their lips. As an audience, you sit back and say, okay, all right, bring it on. And of course, the classic is Once Upon a Time. Mm. Once Upon a Time. And, and often the, the, the trigger phrases are uh, location and time. Mm -hmm. uh, in the country of such and such hundreds of years ago. Those, those two things, location and time, trigger you into receptive mode and say, all right, okay, who was there? What happened? I think and you're right. I was feeling really comfortable then. <laughs> and in that first page, of course, then you just, you know, you, you, you pedal really hard as an author, getting a lot of stuff into that first, into the yeah. to, to set the scene uh, geographically, but also time-wise, to introduce the characters, to do the scene setting, but also to, to move things along. I don't want a static start. I don't, I don't want to bore people on the first page that is a really bad yeah 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 i agree um i was recently talking to some high school kids because they were reading um to kill a mockingbird which is one of them, in my one of my sons his middle name's atticus like i love that book <laughs> well um but that book sort of starts off without much action like i mean i know it has the breaking of the elbow but then there's so much setting of context yeah i think it gets away with it because it's such a winning voice and we love the character just straight away yeah. but yeah i did i did sort of think oh okay because the way that i've always thought about the start of a novel is like you say you want to start with something happening you want to start with the with the character doing something interesting so the audience leans in a little bit and do you think that's a modern technique though because i'm thinking about a lot of classics i mean even my favorite book with picture of Dorian gray and the first few pages are just like about nature and about setting and i know nature is really important because it goes against the unnatural but if you don't know what you're getting into it's a lot of pages to get through of nature and if you're not into it you know as a modern reader you it might not resonate do you think it's a it's a modern technique just to start with action it, it is a classic technique of the of the classic novel to do mm. that layering. Mm. La Thomas Hardy was famous for it, page after page, and there's no characters, nothing's happening, but he's setting the scene. Uh, yeah, look, I, I I like to think sometimes in cinematic terms when when I'm writing, and there's this idea in cinema of the establishment shot that I, before the characters go, we get a, a scene of the castle. We get a scene of the office. We get a scene of the bus stop, just a shot of it. So it puts the audience ready for the characters to come on and have the fight, to have the argument, to have the whatever. And, and when, when we talk about action, something happening, I, I'm quite happy for it to be emotional action doesn't have to be a fist fight. It can be two people talking, can be a disagreement, can be a, a parting of ways, can be a confrontation. Yep, that, that's absolutely fine. And 
although I find this more difficult, it can be a solitary person having some sort of an internal uh, internal action, if you like. Mm. So, yeah, like everything, there are a million ways to do yeah. it, opening. And, uh, and this one, I... I uh, my conception of the whole piece was it was going to be in two parts. The, the first part was going to be in an exotic location and the second part was going to be back home in the centre of the empire in the London analogue that uh, is called Trinovant in, uh, in these stories. So, uh, yeah, what, so where was I going to set this? And South Sea is just, it, it's lovely. I've spent a bit of time in uh, Vanuatu and Fiji and even, even Tahiti. I spent a couple of uh, hol lovely holidays in Tahiti and one of them we actually caught a steamer and went a couple of thousand miles north from Tahiti into the, the vast blue ocean to visit some small islands called the Marquesas Island. And uh, that was eye-opening, I'll tell you. <laughs> Just that whole business of the South Seas and especially where this scene ends, where Caroline smells vanilla. Some of these places they do. They smell like vanilla. It rolls off the land when you're coming into shore. Yeah, right. It's so evocative and so marvellously tropical that, yeah, I thought I'd go with that. I want to go somewhere that smells like vanilla. Oh, it, it is. <laughs> it does. I visited a vanilla farm while I was there. And, and oh, it, it, it was so heavy, but it wasn't overpowering. It's such a rich and sweet and, and complex yeah. flavour and smell. Yeah, that's sensational. Can I, can I ask quickly, Michael, um, I've, I've just, I've sort of, I feel like you like to set a few rules for yourself, like a few structural rules, a few, even with the titles. Yeah. Do you find sort of setting a rule helpful in your creativity, like giving yourself a solid box to work within is that helpful and what do you think that does to your creativity yeah it uh, uh, for me it channels it rather than restricts it uh, uh, I have lots of ideas but you could have ideas till the cows come home for me I have to box them in I have to channel I have to direct them and after writing 39 novels and, and short well stories <laughs> it, it, I've been going at it a long time but after doing that, uh, sometimes uh, it's helpful for me to set myself challenges, rules or challenges to say, right, mm -hmm. this one I'm going to write in this sort of a way just to, keep, just to keep me from going through the same motions, doing the same yeah. thing over and over again, uh, to keep me fresh, to keep me on my toes really because if I, if I just, just repeat what I've done in the past, I... For me, that's not a good way to go. Mm, fair enough. Yeah, I used to, um, when I, I really resonate with that, Michael, because when I, when I was in a band, I, I played bass guitar. For a very long time, I used to have a five-string bass guitar, so it went down to this low B. And when I was playing, like, heavy rock, that would become a crutch for me. I would always go down and be like, yeah, I'm really heavy. And then the guitarist in the band suggested I start to play the four-string because the restriction sort of forced me to make more interesting choices. I had to do stuff with, with fewer ingredients and it yeah. just made, made the music more interesting, I think. So I really resonate with that idea. Like rules, I think, um, can really bring out the best in us, I think. 
Yeah. Mm. And the thing about uh, being the rule maker is that I can break them. <laughs> I mean, I've set the rules. I mean, yeah, I could change it if I really come up with something much, much better. But uh, usually I do uh, stay within the, the setup that uh, I've proposed for myself at the beginning with, with the proviso, with the condition that if something better comes along or if it's not working, yeah, I can go back to base. I think yeah, my so favourite kind of rules, you just break them whenever you, they're not working out for you. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. good though because you don't want to be too rigidly stuck, you know, too. Like, I like that yeah. idea of they're still malleable. Oh, part of the fun of being a writer is that, that, that it is creative and you can change, you can break rules, you can make it up as you go along. That's, that's part of the fun. Now, I'm holding up the first page here and I sent this one to you, Danny, and Ben, and... You see over in the margin here, these balloons? Yeah. yeah, I was wondering about that. Yeah, that's Microsoft Word. And I've written every novel, every story in various versions of Microsoft Word going back for years. And those little notes in the margin are the comments feature. And it's, it's a lot of people don't know about this. And I find it a huge help to me. This is my little running commentary to myself. So when I write something that I feel uh, needs to be fixed up later, mm. I, uh, I make myself a little note so I won't forget. And I do it here rather than on uh, a notebook or something else because it's all in context, mm. beautifully in context. So in the paragraph three here, I've put a little note here uh, so that new readers understand this is a fantasy and not just a historical novel. Now, in my initial go through, I hadn't done that. So I've put a reminder to myself in the margin so I could fix that up when we came to draft two. So can I ask on that? Because that's really interesting to me. Can you, so you make a note rather than just fix it up then and there? Yeah. Just, is that so you don't stop and then... I'm a momentum guy. Your flow, <laughs> yeah. you got to get your oh, flow going. First draft, and it's taken me ages to leave typos because you, you saw typos. I did, I did. And it's <laughs> taken a long do. time because <laughs> I see them and I, I naturally want to fix them there and then. But I've disciplined myself, just just keep going. Wow. I love that. I love how different people work in different ways. It's great. Now, Michael, who read that first draft? No one? No or one. someone? No one? No one. Well, yeah. we have now. We did. I read it. <laughs> I'm on the ground floor. I used to have uh, uh, good first readers in my daughter's who were the, they, they, they were young adults. They were, they were the perfect people for this. And I coached them to read in a particular way. They'd read the first draft with a pencil in hand. And all I wanted them to do was, in the margin, go through. Anything that was good, just put a little tick next to that paragraph. Anything that wasn't good, put a cross next to that paragraph. And anything that you're uncertain about or you felt needed a bit more explanation, just put a question mark. That's all they had to do. And right. so I would get uh, the manuscript back from them with crosses. Okay, I'll do something about that. Uh, ticks, okay, I'll do more of that. Uh, and question marks, well, I'll sort that out. And right. that was useful feedback for me. So version two, which you're about to read, that just yep. came from you filling in the gaps from those comments on the side. Yes, uh, and just the rethinking, having, having a bit of a... Uh, mull over what I'd done and as the story unfolds yeah the beginning is a bit you always think hmm yeah there's all sorts of stuff that's happened towards the end of the story that I need to tweak the beginning in order for it to work yeah. properly 
Can I, can, sorry, before you read this next one, can I just ask a question? Because as I read your three copies, your three drafts, I noticed that there were some things that made it through. So they sort of just, there were things that you just must have really liked. And the thing that you just read with um, Caroline Fitzwilliam was the only person in the history of the universe who'd managed to make khaki shorts look stunning. That stayed consistent throughout the three drafts. And I was wondering, like, why? Like, did you just like that image? Did you, did you, do you know what I mean? Like, how come you didn't tinker with that? Because yeah. I saw so many other things that you tinkered with that you just must have loved that one. Yeah. And, and that's, that one, uh, the image, I, I like the image. Khaki, <laughs> I've had trouble with khaki in the past and I just think it's, it's an awkward colour. So I wanted to bring it in and sort of uh, reimagine it, if you like. But um, the, the relationship between Aubrey and Caroline is at the heart of all six of the previous books. Uh, it was, and I hadn't planned that. When I wrote book one, I planned it all out. This was going to happen. This, uh, the, these two characters, then this character, blah, 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 blah. And she was going to be a minor character. But I, I, when she came into the first, uh, the first draft of that first book, um, I was writing away and, and Caroline and Aubrey were sort of, they were flirting with each other. <laughs> I had a look in my plan. It didn't say anything about that. So I rewrote the chapter and forced them apart. Then a few chapters later on, they did it again. Unplanned. They were just, they, there was just this natural attraction between them and they were bantering and they were on again, off again. And so there was a moment where I had to decide, do I go with my plan or do I go with this organic growth between the characters? And I went with the characters and I was so glad I did because that over the entire six book, the character arc, the, um, the, the historical arc, if you like, the narrative thrust was supported by this, unresolved romantic tension all the way through, especially underlined with the manners and morals of Edwardian quasi-England, was wonderful. And we get right up to the end in there, will they, won't they? Yeah, they, yeah, they, they do. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, well. So the, I, um, I, I, I had to incorporate that early on to remind everybody that... Uh, Aubrey just dotes on Caroline. Yeah, yeah, he, right. He is besotted with her. And from the first time he met her, he was. And he's unapologetically head over heels about Beautiful. it. I love okay, that. Okay, yeah, that's cool. I like that. And that, that's what I wanted too. I didn't want one of these half-hearted romances. Yeah, Who I'll, wants a half-hearted romance? Exactly. He, <laughs> he is totally devoted in all ways. And even uh, so that he even finds her in khaki adorable. <laughs> just with draft two, Michael. Sure. Okay, draft two. Uh, we begin pretty much the same way. Aubrey Fitzwilliam wasn't sure how he felt about ambivalence. On the one hand, it showed an unwillingness to fall for the allure of certainty, which too often was a refuge of the obtuse, but on the other, it could lead uh, the way to wishy-washiness. There's a slight tweak in there, and uh, I, I sort of like that opening, especially because it's got a semicolon, and I'm just fond of semicolons. <laughs> Love semicolons. <laughs> <laughs> Aubrey never wanted to wash wishy, being half-heartedly to having far too many regrets. And frankly, he couldn't afford to be half-hearted. Any less than his entire effort and focus right now, for instance, as the wind spirit limped into the harbour on the Azor Island, would result in the catch falling apart because of that collision with the mighty ocean sunfish three days ago. 
was only his spell, a hasty combining of the law of completeness and the law of propinquity, where some handy cardboard was currently doing the job of heavy-duty marine hardwood, thanks to Aubrey's magic, that was keeping the plucky vessel afloat. Any diminution in his focus, uh, his maintenance or his attention would be a watery disaster. So that, that is an interpolation. Aubrey was at the helm, weary and drawn as the yacht approached the beach of the small southeast town. He was ignoring the jetty, beaching the boats was safest and would allow repairs most efficiently. Easy, George Doyle called from the bow. Easy, a couple of yards, close now, there. The wind spirit glided to a halt, crunching onto the white sand, while a handful of interested locals watched from under the shade of the ubiquitous coconut trees. A few hurried over to help make fast catching lines, George threw them. The catch shifted a little, then settled, and they were safe. Aubrey groaned and slumped. He hadn't maintained a spell of that length of time since the bad old days, 10 years or more ago, when his extravagantly reckless experimenting with death magic had left him balanced on a life edge between on a knife edge between life and oblivion for years. Okay, so yeah, a fair, uh, fair bit of moving around, changing, interpolating, clarifying, and a few, few more callbacks to the past, to, um, to what's happened before, to link it with the previous six books. What I found really interesting in reading the drafts, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's like the first draft there was still so much stuck in your head, but by the time we got, because you could see it, you know, you could see the world and you knew the characters, but, you know, you wrote a bit more into draft two, but then by the time we get to draft three, and I might get you to read it so we can sort of remember it next to draft two, but then it was like all the things that originally were in your head finally sort of came out on the page. Yeah, there, there was a lot of that, and... Uh, draft three has had another hand helping mm -hmm. because, uh, uh, as I said, I wanted to do this as a uh, self-publishing and I wanted to do it properly. Um, so I hired an editor, a professional editor, Scott Van Der Valk, who's uh, done work with me on Aurealis, the science fiction magazine. I knew Scott's work. I knew he was a good editor. And I also knew that he was used to preparing stuff for digital publication, mm -hmm. which is a, is a special skill. So I got him to edit it and we had a number of backwards and forwards. So really between version two and the version here that we've got as version three, there's probably another couple. Mm -hmm. and, and he and I discussed a number of things, uh, in particular, the opening paragraph. <laughs> he didn't like it and <laughs> I did. And look... I've worked with many editors over the years and 99% uh, of the time, I just agree wholeheartedly with their suggestions. They're right. They, they're clever people. They know stuff. They can approach it from the point of view of a reader better than I can. Mm -hmm. I'm too stuck in writer mode. 99% I agree. Then there's about half a percent where the, I don't agree and then I listen to them, then I agree. <laughs> And then there's about a half a percent where I say, no, 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 it's got to, no, no, it can't, no, no, it's got to stay like that. So editors are very important people. Like, do you want me to read? Uh, yeah, Aubrey I think Rick? just so we can get that draft two and three fresh in our heads. Aubrey Fitzwilliam never wanted to be wishy-washy. Being half-hearted led to having far too many regrets and, frankly, he couldn't afford to be half-hearted. Anything less than his entire effort and focus right now, for instance, as the wind spirit limped into the harbour on Yazor Island, would result in the catch falling apart because of that collision with the mighty ocean sunfish three days ago. 
It was only his spell, a hasty combining of the law of completeness and the law of propinquity, where some handy cardboard was currently doing the job of heavy-duty marine hardwood, thanks to Aubrey's magic, that was keeping the plucky vessel afloat. Any diminution in his focus, his maintenance or his attention would be a watery disaster. Aubrey was at the helm, weary and drawn, as the yacht approached the beach of the small South Seas town. He was ignoring the jetty, beaching the boat was safest and would allow repairs most efficiently. Easy, George Doyle called from the bow. Easy, a couple of yards, close there, close now, there. The wind spirit glided to a halt, crunching onto the white sand, while a handful of interested locals watched from under the shade of the ubiquitous coconut palms. A few hurried over to help make fast to those same palms, catching the lines, George threw them. The catch shifted a little, then settled, and they were safe. Aubrey groaned and slumped. He hadn't maintained a spell of that length since the bad old days when his reckless experimenting with death magic had left him balanced between life and oblivion for far too long. Despite the tropical sun, he shuddered at the recollect, uh, recollection. I'm glad I got better, he thought. George made his way aft. He'd taken to the both tropical life and nautical life extremely well. He cut a pair of trousers into shorts and for the beach approach, he'd issued a shirt entirely. His skin was burned brown and he'd grown what he called a sailor's beard, which left him looking positively leonine, or perhaps sea leonine. Nicely done, old man, George said, hands on hips, a fine way to make our latest destination. Creeping in like a stale that's put on weight and really let itself go? In one piece is what I meant. I'd be happy enough in a lifeboat, adventure and all that, but responsibilities being what they are, right now I'd rather not. George's two responsibilities chose that moment to bolt out of the companionway and hug him round the waist. Uh, they then scampered along the side deck to the bow and waved at the friendly locals. Dot and Jack weren't phased by the emergency, Aubrey asked George. Hardly. All part of the fun to them, but Jack did get down in the mouth worrying about the poor old sunfish. Here we go. Now, that should have come as a complete shock to any loyal readers of the previous series that uh, these characters are old enough to have children. Yeah, I, I can I can imagine <laughs> that would have been shocking to read. What? He's got kids now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It uh, certainly uh, changes the young adult dynamic somewhat. That's quite quite convincingly, I hope. Mm. Yeah, and I was thinking about those drafts because I I, um, I actually did notice that the paragraph sort of it was like it went through a process of refinement, and you sort of said. You said all the things that you had in draft one, but you said it with fewer words, I found. You sort of cut to it a little bit quicker. Was that sort of what the editor's note was as well? Uh, yeah, and that's a combination thing. I inevitably do that as I go through draft. Yet yeah, the, the first drafts are always verbose. There's always too many words. Uh, and as I go through every round, I'm cutting things out. I'm combining words. Uh, I, I don't need two two words to describe. I can just use one. I can neaten up that sentence. Uh, yep, there's an awful lot of that. And and much of that by now is almost unconscious as I'm going through. My current work, uh, work in progress that I'm working on today, uh, that's where I am at the moment. I, there are structural things that I'm working on. But as I'm going, I'm just neatening, tidying. I'm not quite up to the very, very last stage that I call finessing. Uh, yeah, that, that comes a little bit later. Well, I can't what, wait what? to read that because, honestly, that third draft for me, it felt, when I've read it, felt really polished. What did you think, Ben? Yeah, I found it the same thing. I just thought it would, yeah, 
it went completely through a process of of getting tighter and getting like you know, I, I felt like the characters felt more vibrant and and then the action as well. I thought you did a great job of illuminating what was happening with the catch as it as it came to the beach and it felt a little dramatic as well. And I yeah, I thought you did a great job of of refining it throughout those those drafts. Danny, this is final now. This is actually, has actually been published. Okay. But, so this, it's it's not going to get any better than that. But the uh, there's a technique uh, that every writer uses uh, that uh, I've actually sort of given a name and I share it again through writing workshop. And I call it uh, distraction through action. Mm-hmm. That uh, that what what we do is we have action of a of an actual physical sort, like the boat coming into the shore, or emotional sort, there's an argument. While that's all going on, we sift in details. We mm-hmm. sift in background details. Uh, we sift in backstory. We sift Michael, in... Michael, you're background. telling all the secrets of all the authors. We agreed. You wouldn't say. Uh, <laughs> I have my invisible toolbox here, and that's one of my key tools that I drag out and I yeah. all the distraction through action. And it's oh, absolutely right particularly important for fantasy, science fiction and historical writers, mm-hmm. where the setting is, is quite often so different from what you can take for granted in a contemporary mm-hmm. novel. And so somehow you have to sift that in without dumping it on the reader. So how do you do that? Distraction through action. Love it. I really like that idea. And what a great chat. I'm so... You know, I, I'm always, always so in awe of both you guys just coming on and sharing those drafts because a lot of people, you know, I feel like their first draft is, is quite vulnerable and, and shouldn't be read. But I'm, I think it's so important to unpack that process. Now, Michael, I need to ask you, I didn't ask you this before because it's a question that I only sort of started asking recently-ish. Why do you write? <laughs> uh, because I read. Uh, it is as simple and as complex as that. that that's where I've been. I've always been a reader. I've loved reading. I've loved the books I'm reading, but I love the process of reading, of engaging with a story, immersing with a story. And it, it was sort of a, a short step from enjoying that so much to thinking, well, maybe I can, I can flip over and be on the other side of that creative process. Instead of being a reader, uh, enjoying the the writer, I could be the writer providing the things for the reader, mm. and I, I just like making up stuff. <laughs> it, it, it really does get as simple as that, uh, and it, it's one one of my maxims that especially fantasy writers, we're the ones who sit at our desk and we look through the window at the great big wonderful world out there and say, "Yeah, I can do better than that." <laughs> I yeah. love that. Can I can I ask one more question, Danny? Is that okay? I, I think this. I feel like this is a question that Michael, you may have never been asked. I'm sure you've done lots of interviews before, but this is. I feel like I've come up with a with a real cracker for you. Yeah, I just feel like this is. I'm getting into some narrow detail with this one. So in version two, you describe Sophie as having wormed somewhere. I really liked wormed, but then in version three, she doesn't worm. She eat. She eases. Mm. You're an English teacher, aren't you, Ben? I am. So my question is, (laughs) why? Why did you change wormed to eased? And I'm sorry that's so detailed, but I'm just fascinated. That's a a deliberate choice you've made between version two and three. 
Right. And I was just wondering why. Like, I just thought it was so interesting. You, you put your finger on the real nitty-gritty of writing. It comes down to words. It comes down to words and word choice. Uh, we have lots of words at our fingertips that we can possibly use. And so why is it word A rather than word B? And why do we change word B to word C? Yep, that, that is the craft of it, the magic of it. But it, it's also in, intellectual that... Um, I can remember looking at worm and thinking, no, 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 no. Sophie does not worm. She, she is much more, she's much more, she's not, not slimy. She's yeah. much more clever. She's much more bold and upfront. And she's much, much more strategic. She would just ease herself into a situation. Wormed is like the connotation is a bit sneaky, isn't it? Yes. She's she um, both the... This part of the challenges of writing something set in quasi-1910 is the role of women. Mm. If you're being historically absolutely accurate, you would find very few of these bold uh, suffragist style. They were around, but very few of them. I've got two of them in this story. Good. And it, exactly. So <laughs> it's, not, it's not the past. It's an imaginary past. So I can make it how I want. So these people, she is quite bold and quite upfront and quite strategic and tact if she wants something she's also french <laughs> the, the, the french analog and she she is very smooth very cultured she is really classy so she wouldn't work oh, there I love also, that. there's also one other really silly reason that uh, when i was writing this uh we were going through these uh, marathons of watching old movies on dvd and thing and i was watching um lord of the rings um Two Towers with Grima, Worm Tongue. Worm Tongue. <laughs> uh, and I, and it, uh, uh, no, it didn't, so I had to change it. And that's where that was floating at the back of my mind. At that I, I am so happy that there was that much thought that went into that because yeah. I felt like there was. And I just, <laughs> I think that's so great. A lot of changes you just make really quickly, but that mm. one I can remember, go, hmm, I had to think it through. And yeah, wow. So coming back to it, uh, to give an answer, well, gee, I'm glad someone asked that question. <laughs> it was worth it. <laughs> there you go, Ben. Highlight of the episode. <laughs> Look, thank you so much for being such a good sport, throwing your hat in the ring, talking about the drafting process, being vulnerable. I'm always saying that being vulnerable is such an important part of being human, but often we don't want to do that. When Ben and I did the first feedback session, we just had, we didn't know. We thought people are going to like this, hate this. Is anyone going to listen? And it turned out we just got a lot of feedback straight away saying thank you for sharing and being vulnerable and, you know, putting it out there. So thank you, Michael. This will be uh, feedback session two. I've got, we've got a few more in the pipeline coming up, but I really appreciate you sharing this. Writers, aspiring writers, readers, and just people interested in the, the magic of writing and reading. Yeah, thanks, Danny. Thanks, Ben. Been a lot of fun revisiting the story that is out there that uh, people can find it on my website.